This is episode number 219 with Susan Piver. Welcome to the Melissa Ambrosini Show. I'm your host, Melissa, best-selling author of Mastering Your Mean Girl and Open Wide. And I'm here to remind you that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word. Each week, I'll be getting up close and personal with thought leaders from around the globe, as well as your weekly dose of motivation so that you can create epic change in your own life and become the best version of yourself possible. Are you ready, beautiful? I just wanted to quickly remind you that if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Mine is Himalaya. For those of you that have not heard of Himalaya, it's an epic brand new podcast app, which has so many awesome and unique features no other podcast app has, like episode and channel playlists. It's free, so easy to find new shows, and is really user-friendly. So head on over to the app or Google Play Store to download it today. Don't forget to follow me once you're done so that you can listen to my episodes one day earlier than they're usually released. Pretty cool, huh? This episode is brought to you by Uveda. As you guys know, I'm obsessed with Ayurveda and Uveda is an epic, heart-centered, family-owned Ayurvedic company with a larger-than-life vision to create a healthier, happier world using the intelligence of Mother Nature. Now, I truly wish that none of us needed supplements. But in this modern world, with the depletion in our soil and with the full lives we all lead these days, sometimes our bodies need some extra love and support. This is why I love Uveda. They are such high-grade, Ayurvedically developed supplements to support not only your body, but your mind and soul too, helping you rebalance and come back to homeostasis, which is what the body wants. I love their mood supplements and love how they come in individual packs, perfect for someone who travels as much as I do. Now I've teamed up with Uveda to give you, the Epic MA Tribe, 35% off your first order. So all you have to do is head to melissaambrosini.com forward slash Uveda, and that is spelt Y-O-U-V-E-D-A, and you can get your 35% off your first order right now. Susan Piver is a New York Times bestselling author of nine books, including the award-winning How to Not Be Afraid of Your Own Life, The Wisdom of a Broken Heart, and Start Here Now, an open-hearted guide to the path and practice of meditation. Her latest book is The Four Noble Truths of Love, Buddhist Wisdom for Modern Relationships. And this book was how I discovered Susan and her incredible work. She's been practicing Buddhism since 1995 and graduated from a Buddhist seminary in 2004. She is an internationally acclaimed meditation teacher known for her ability to translate ancient practices into modern life. Her work has been featured on The Oprah Show, Today, CNN, and in The New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Money, and many more. In 2011, she launched the Open Heart Project, the largest virtual mindfulness community in the world. And in today's episode, we chat about her story and how she got to where she is today, why it's so hard to make relationships work and last these days, the most powerful and hard questions you need to ask yourself before you get married, What are the four noble truths about relationships? Everyone needs to know these four noble truths. The four most powerful relationship qualities to cultivate. The first place to start if you're going through a challenging time in your relationship right now. The one book she would put in the school curriculum of every school around the world. Her epic morning routine. You'll also hear my morning routine. We talk about what is CCC and she gives us her top tips for health, wealth, love, and so much more. 
And for everything that Susan and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissarambrosini.com forward slash 219. But before we dive into this incredible conversation, I want to read the review of the week. And this week, it comes from Casey Sakasa, and it's a five-star review titled Inspired. And she says, The Melissa Ambrosini Show is my absolute favorite to listen to. I love her high vibration and leave each episode feeling so inspired. There is just so much amazing information that I'll often have a notepad with me to jot down things. Keep inspiring, Mel. Thank you so much, beautiful girl. I'm so grateful for your kind words and for taking the time to leave that review. I absolutely love and adore you. And don't forget that if you want to be the review of the week for next week, make sure you head on over to iTunes or your podcast app and leave that review right now. And now, without further ado, I'm so excited for you guys to hear this conversation because it is information that every single human being needs to have in their mind. So let's get started. Let's dive in with the incredible Susan Piva. Welcome, Susan. I am so excited to have you on the show. But before we dive in, can you please tell us what you had for breakfast this morning? (laughs) What I had for breakfast this morning was a green smoothie followed by leftover Thai food from last night because it was so (laughs) delicious. I just wanted to keep eating it. That is an interesting combination. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Oh, well, I am so excited to have you here. But before we go any further, I would love for you to tell your story. How did you get to where you are today doing the incredible work that you now do? Well, thank you for asking. And and I am really excited to have this conversation with you. So thanks for um, opening the door. My whole life has been an exercise in serendipity, I would say. And I'm not trying to be you know, cute or minimize the amount of work and the ups and the downs and so forth. But really, I never intended to write books. I never intended to be a Buddhist teacher. I never intended to have an online community. There are things that sort of happened. I I know that sounds kind of bogus, but I was getting married. I've been married now for almost 20 years. And I went to the bookstore to look for books about this really like the most important commitment I think you could probably ever make in your life. And all the books that I found were about outfits. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, I like a good outfit, but there was nothing about like the deeper meaning of how do you actually make this commitment honestly? And I love this person that I was going to marry. And I, I didn't want to, you know, be dishonest by saying things like, I promise I'll always love you because I just knew that that was not going to happen, that there would be love and it would go away and it would come back. And anyway, I had this uh, realization that the relationships that I've had in the past didn't fail because we stopped loving each other. They failed because we were unable to create a life together that we both loved. So I started to think, well, what about our, what do I know about how this person sees our life together? I know, I know how, I know what it's like to love him and I know what it's like to, you know, go out with him, but where, where does he want to live and what is his kid going to call me? And anyway, I just started writing these questions down and it became a really interesting exercise for us. Didn't, we didn't agree on hardly anything, but that was, didn't matter. What mattered was we had the conversations that we needed to have. And somebody said, well, that that would be a good book. And through happenstance, it, it became a book. And then it became a very successful book through further happenstance. And then I was able to write more books. And during this time, I had always been a Buddhist. I've been a Buddhist for uh, 25 years. But it was just something I did on my own. But as my marriage progressed, I I was finding that my Buddhist practice was serving me more and more when we would disconnect and it showed me how we could reconnect. And 
I just thought, why, why doesn't everyone know this? Why don't people know about these teachings that are quite ancient that can really help you to love and remain connected to love? So my teaching career had sort of evolved at that point, and I just I wrote this next book, The Four Noble Truths of Love. So that's kind of a short version, but you know I don't want to take forever telling you my whole life story. <laughs> so you are a stepmama. Mm-hmm, I am. How how many stepchildren do you have and how old are they? I have one stepchild who was 11 when we got married. And we've been married for almost 20 years. So he's almost 31. He's a grown man now. Wow. And yeah. are you? Are, do you have children? Are you a stepmom or a mom? I am a stepmom too. And he is 13. And yeah, he's, he's divine. And so I can really relate to being put into this situation and i did the same thing as you i went straight to the bookshop and i was like where are the books on relationships where are the books on parenting where are the books on step parenting cuz they didn't exist so maybe you could write a, a buddhist book on step parenting but that that's another episode because there's just not a lot out of there no i absolutely love your book the four noble truths about relationships and thank you i totally agree with you you know this is such a huge commitment it's a huge thing that i sure didn't take lightly i got married when i was 28 mm-hmm. And my husband had had a practice marriage before that. (laughs) So with divorce rates on the rise, why is it so hard to make relationships work these days? Like what what is going on? Gosh, it's such a good question. It's such a good question. But, you know, of course, I don't know. If I did know, I would be buying everyone who's listening dinner and that would be my pleasure. But I think from what I can see, it has something to do with the stories that we tell ourselves about love and the deepening role that these stories have in the way we look at other human beings. A lot of the books about relationships, some of which are great, I've personally benefited from some really remarkable books about relationships. However, 99% of them, and and I don't think I'm exaggerating, are about how to get love, how to attract it, how to make it come back, how to fluff yourself up in some way so that you are, quote, deserving of love or that you attract the right kind of love. And 0% are about how to love. And somehow we have what I call image poisoning when it comes to many things, but relationships included. We want the partner that looks a certain way. We want the home that looks a certain way. The relationship that when we talk about it, we can use certain words. We look at it, our relationships, as movies that we are seeking to cast people in. And it's unsoulful. It's it's shallow and it's nobody's fault. But I feel like we're fed a million stories from a million movies and a million songs and a million books about what it should be. And there's very, very little about what it actually is. And all of those stories, by the way, end at the falling in love part or the getting married part. They don't show you what happens next. So there's there are very few models for us to look at. In fact, I, I don't think I know of any so that's one possible reason. Yeah, they don't show you how to move through challenging situations together. They don't show you how to move through when someone goes through a health crisis or there's a death in the family or, you know, they don't show you that stuff and teach you how to move through it with as much ease and grace as you possibly can. And you know, you're right, the stories that we tell ourselves, and often those stories are something we've learned from watching our parents. And if you win the gene lottery and you have this beautiful conscious model that you get to witness your whole upbringing, then that's awesome. But a lot of the time, that's not the case for a lot of people. So 
the stories that we create within ourselves are from witnessing our parents. And so I think it's really important that we get really clear on what are the stories that we're telling ourselves Mm. about love. It's really important that we do that. And this is what I did before I got married. Hmm. You know, before we got married, we got engaged very quickly and we got married five months later. Like we, we didn't waste any time. We just wanted to be married and we wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of work on releasing the stored trauma in my body. I did a lot of reprogramming of limiting beliefs so that when I did say I do, I wanted to say it from that place of wholeness and not take any baggage into my newly married life. Mm. And most people, they you know, get a personal trainer before their wedding. I went and got a spiritual trainer <laughs> and it was so beneficial for me. And you know, your other book as well, you talk about all of the questions that you should ask, the hard questions that you should ask before you say, I do, which I think is a brilliant title, by the way. Mm. So before we dive into the four noble truths about relationships, can you tell us about some of the questions that we should ask ourselves? I know you've got a hundred, but what are some of the biggies that we should ask ourselves before we say, I do, before we embark on this contract with this person? Mm -hmm. I'm happy to, but but I also want to just appreciate you for doing that work before you said I do, because that was a kindness not just to yourself. It was a kindness to your partner and a kindness to his child, and it, it was good for everyone. So kudos on that. Thank you. And it wasn't... it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies. I tell you that it was. (laughs) And I did a lot of body work as well. So I didn't just do the spiritual work. I did a lot of body body work. So I worked with this amazing body worker and he did a lot of releasing this trauma and belief systems Mm. and things like that. And it was, it was intense, but it was amazing. And I'm so grateful that I did it. And he also did it as well, which was awesome. Oh, that's great. that's, That's great. So In terms of the hard questions, there are certain questions that are deal breakers. Not very few, but some, and it depends on the couple, are, for example, do you want children? That is a question that if you have different answers, there is no compromised position. That is a very important thing to know. And it was interesting to me to learn that I heard from people who read the book and did the questions And they found out the person they were going to marry didn't want children, and they really did. So, you know, that's that's one. For some people, questions of religion and faith are deal breakers, understandably. So you should be sure. And one of the questions that you could ask is something simple like, what holidays are we going to celebrate? That's one of the questions in the book. And for many people, for myself, for example, that was like a meh question. It's like, I don't know, your birthday? So, but for other people, that that's a very deep and meaningful question of faith and family and so on. So the deal breaker questions are different for different people. But another one is something along the lines of how much money do you think is enough? How much money do you have? First of all, is a really good question. It's an embarrassing question. It's a weird question. But if you're thinking of marrying someone, it's a really sensible, pragmatic question. And then, you know, what to you is comfortable? What to you is wealthy? For me, it might be $100 million, and for you, it might be $10,000. So those are important things to note. But with the exception of those few deal-breaker questions, it doesn't matter if you have the same answers in any of the other questions. It really doesn't. That was my interesting revelation. What matters is that you know each other. And the process of answering the questions is a process of deepening intimacy, not of checking things off a list. Okay, we we agree on this. We've got that. We have no problem here. It's not like that. It's not transactional. It's who are you? And this is who I am. And the key thing to remember, again, is just because you love someone does not mean you will love your life together. So to pay someone else and yourself the courtesy of examining your views of life is a great kindness, I think, that you can do for the person you love and they for you. Mm. 
Beautiful. So they're like the biggies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I hadn't read this book before, so I didn't know those questions, but my husband and I did that before we got married. He kind of sat me down and we had the money talk. Mm. How do you see our financial situation? Like, are we combining everything? Are we not? You know, what do you think is enough? You know, we had that conversation very early on and it was really powerful, really powerful. So I really want to encourage everybody to grab that book, The Hard Questions, a hundred essential questions to ask yourself before you say, I do, because it is really powerful. But let's move on to the four noble truths about relationships. I loved this book Mm. so much. It is so beautiful and Everyone, get out your pen and paper because you're going to want to take notes. So can you tell us what these four noble truths are? Yes. And I'm so glad you liked it. Thank you so much for saying. It means a lot to me and I, and I appreciate hearing that. Well, the entire Buddhist path, and I'll take a very short side trip into the Buddha world because that's the basis for the, for this, the logic of the four noble truths of love. The entire Buddhist path is based around something called the Four Noble Truths. And it doesn't matter if you practice in a Tibetan tradition or a Zen tradition, or they're all based around these four truths. And they're the very first teachings given by the Buddha upon his attainment of enlightenment. And they are the following. The first noble truth is the truth, which according to the Buddha is life is suffering. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound very inspiring, I understand. But i almost 110% sure that the Buddha did not mean life sucks. That's not the first noble truth. The first noble truth is more like things are unsatisfying. Life is unsatisfying uh, because things change. Even the satisfying moments go away. So it's the truth of impermanence. It's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is called the cause of suffering, which is grasping in this case, which basically means pretending the first noble truth isn't true and trying to create permanence in your life anyway. The third noble truth is called the cessation of suffering, which says, now that you know the truth, you also know the cure, which is stop doing that. Of course, it's not that simple. But the fourth noble truth is called the eightfold path, the right speech, right livelihood, and so on. And those are the eight steps that you can take to stop grasping and therefore stop suffering. So at one point in my marriage, we were in a rough spot. And I don't mean like, you know, we were cranky. I mean, we were not, we couldn't stand being around each other. Everything one person said upset the other. And there was nothing wrong, Melissa. There, we, there was nothing going on. It wasn't like we had anything to argue about, but there was just, it was like, gears grinding against each other. We hurt each other's feelings. Even the simplest things like, you know, is there anything in the house for dinner? I asked one night. That that caused an argument that was almost like, we're going to have to get divorced. Don't ask me why, but that question set him off. And, and he did things that set me off, And but we just could not get along. And we tried all sorts of things, talking, not talking, going to a therapy, therapist, having sex, avoiding sex. No, nothing. It, it was just, we had this massive disconnect. And I was sitting at my desk one day crying and I thought, maybe it's over. I, I thought we loved each other, but all things end. I'm a, I, I'm a Buddhist. That's what I've been taught. Maybe, maybe it's over, but I don't want it to be over. But I have no idea where to begin fixing this. And then my immediate next thought was, begin at the beginning. At the beginning are four noble truths. So that was a lucky thought. I don't know where it came from. And so I was like, oh yeah, I'm a Buddhist, four noble truths. Let me see how can they help me in my marriage. So I started thinking about them, the suffering and the cessation and so on. And I was like, wow, that doesn't help. I don't get why that's helpful. But then I started to try to apply the logic, the truth, the cause of the suffering, the cessation of the suffering, and the actual real life steps you can take 
to resolve the suffering. And I saw that the Four Noble Truths magically sort of rearranged themselves in my mind to apply to my marriage. And parenthetically, The Four Noble Truths of Love, I think, is the first book ever written about relationships from a Buddhist point of view by a Buddhist teacher who is also a wife. It it will not be the last, and it will not be the best, but it is the first. And so it's just an interesting thing to note to me that all of the teachings over the 2,500 years of Buddhist tradition have been given by men who are not married. So it makes sense that there's a lot of room to play in applying these teachings to our our lives, which I find scintillating and wonderful and inspiring. Anyway, so I started thinking about, well, okay, well, what are the four noble truths in my love life? How can they help me? And the first noble truth of love is relationships never stabilize. Relationships are uncomfortable. Nobody ever told me that, Melissa, that it's never going to actually stabilize. And I had thought, well, we'll I'll meet someone and I will fall in love. We'll have great times. We'll have problems. We'll resolve those problems. And at some point, it's going to be smooth sailing. Well, it, that never happened. I mean, there were great moments of fantastic joy and passion and deep, deep, deep love and then distance and arguments and so on. But those cycles never stopped. And to this day, they have not stopped. So just like the first noble truth of Buddhism, things are impermanent. Well, every phase of your relationship is also impermanent, which when you start to look at it that way, frees up a kind of mental and emotional space to go with what is happening rather than what you think ought to be happening. And I found that very empowering. So it's never going to stabilize. It's always going to be a little uncomfortable, no matter what stage you are at your in a relationship. Like, say you're going on a blind date. Like, you don't even know the person. It's uncomfortable. What if they like me? What if they don't like me? What if all my relationship problems are repeated? And, you know, it's very uncomfortable. And then if you fall in love, that's fantastic. That's the best thing ever, period. But it's also kind of uncomfortable because it's fraught. Everything is very, very meaningful. Like, why did they look at me that way? And what if I, why did I wear those pink pants? That was a big mistake. Or, you know, there's (laughs) this kind of discomfort from moment to moment that's quite intense along with all the other wonderful things. And then if you're in a long-term relationship, the discomfort, weirdly, looks like irritation. (laughs) Nobody told me that either. There's a lot of irritation. No matter how wonderful the person is and how wonderful you are, just the fact of living with another person creates a kind of tension that often is expressed in irritation, like, why did you do that again? Or I told you not to put that there or whatever these tiny BS things are that we actually can really cause us to fight. So that's uncomfortable. That That's uncomfortable. And of course, when a relationship ends, that is the most profound discomfort, I think, that we can ever experience. So at every phase, there's as, lo- as well as great joy and, and bliss and satisfaction and closeness, there's also this underlying sense of it's not going to last because it isn't doesn't mean it's not going to get better it just means whatever whatever phase we're in now it has a lifespan and let's let's not fight that which is leads to the second noble truth which is meeting the discomfort together is love and thinking that they should be comfortable is actually what creates a lot of the discomfort. That's the second noble truth, thinking that my relationship should be comfortable. That actually creates a lot of discomfort. And it's if you give up that idea, well, it's not supposed to make me comfortable. It's supposed to be fascinating. It's supposed to be enlivening. It's supposed to be confounding. It's supposed to be interesting. It's supposed to be mysterious. 
comfortable? I don't know. It's, it looks different. It's very liberating. And it's also very scary because the second noble truth asks you to give up your fantasy. And, and I, I really want to say, I, I always feel very, very strongly about saying that this way of looking at relationships does not include relationship discomforts related to abuse or addiction. That's a different category. And I just would be mortified if someone thought, oh, some Buddhist lady said that I should live with my discomfort when that discomfort is actually out of everyone's control. So if anyone listening is in that extremely complicated and difficult situation, my heart goes out to you, but but also this is not, other steps are required. So the second noble truth, thinking it should be comfortable, contributes to the discomfort. And the third noble truth is meeting the discomfort together is love as much as anything else. So a good partner is someone who will, when problems arise, like sort of turn to face you and talk it out. That's great. That's a really good partner. A fantastic partner, an amazing partner, is one who, rather than turning to face you, will sort of turn to stand shoulder to shoulder with you to look out at the arc of the ride that you're on right now. Oh, we love each other right now. Now we don't. Now you love me. I don't really care. I don't love you right now. Now it's the opposite. Someone who will sort of be on this ride with you, who metaphorically or literally will just hold your hand and jump into the mystery. To me, that's, that's an extraordinary partner and not impossible to find, but that's a great partner, I think. And then the fourth the noble truth, the final noble truth of love is there's a way to do it. So, okay, yay, discomfort, interesting. Those are intellectual notions that may or may not land for different people. But say they do land for you. Well, now what do I actually do? This is one, one of the areas among many that Buddhism really shines in that because it's very practical. It says, okay, well, here's the things you should do. So there are three sort of categories of actions that you can take. And they're actually based on the cycle of the spiritual journey, which always begins with establishing a foundation. You can't be on 12 spiritual journeys at once. So you create a foundation for your exploration, whether it's something that many other people do, like for me, I have a traditional path, or something else, something very personal and particular to you. But still you say, this is what I'm doing. You create the foundation. And if you don't create the foundation, your spiritual journey is just a weird kind of wandering. The foundation is essential. So how do you create the foundation in a relationship? So what are the foundational qualities that without these, you may be having a kick-ass love affair, but you're probably not having a relationship. And those qualities are first, honesty, which doesn't mean blurting out what you think when you think it. Honesty is predicated on knowing the truth yourself about what you feel and who you are and what you're looking for, or that you don't know who you are right now or how you feel or what you're looking for, and that you're able to share that skillfully, and that the person you are in a relationship with is also able to do that. So if that's not there, again, you can have an amazing love affair, but love affairs and relationships are different. And I don't think a, a relationship is possible without that, that quality of, of just honesty. So, and the second foundational quality, which sounds maybe kind of prosaic, is I call good manners, which doesn't mean, you know, knowing which fork to use particularly. It means being aware of and thoughtful about the other person. Which sounds so like, yeah, of course, but it's amazing how in a relationship, especially the deeper it gets, the more likely we are to actually stop thinking about that person and what was their day like and what do they need right now and how are they feeling and the little tiny things in your home, like 
my husband, for example, is uh, he has these ideas about these things. These things should go on this shelf, and those things should go on that shelf. I don't care. <laughs> I, I, I don't care about those things, but he does. So I try to make that effort. Well, let me put this on the shelf that he thinks <laughs> is the right shelf. So I just mean this very ordinary, ground level, earthy kind of good manners, which is a kind of thoughtfulness. If you're with someone that can't be thoughtful, that will not think about you, then again, you could have a great love affair, but it would be very hard and even impossible to have a relationship. And I was just going to say, you know, never underestimate the power of these two little words, thank you. Oh, right. You know, like manners, it's, it's just when my husband says, thank you for making the bed this morning. Like that means the world to me because it means he noticed and he, and it means that he's acknowledging me. And so that is something that we are very intentional about, like constantly. And, and with my stepson, my, I call him my bonus son, you know, with mm -hmm. him as well, like manners, please and thank you. Never underestimate just how powerful those little words are. So I just wanted to interject with that. I appreciate that. And I, I totally agree. And it's, you, you can't underestimate it. And, and at, underneath those pleases and thank yous are an awareness of the other person. And it's yes. when, when you are, when you know that the other person is aware of you, that is powerful. The, the Zen priest and poet, John Tarrant Roshi, once said, attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and are blessed. And that's basically my whole book in like two sentences. So I'm a little upset with him, but that is it. And that's what you're describing. Someone is paying attention to you. And that actually is the most basic form of love. Without it, there is no love. There's stories and concepts and make-believe. But when someone actually places their attention on you, and if anyone has a meditation practice, they would be particularly skilled in this, I think, that's the gateway. That's the seed syllable. That's the place that love lives. And actually, it's almost the whole thing. It's just to pay attention to the other person. And then good manners arise from that. So I, we're on the same page there. Yeah, beautiful. So then the next quality is what ha also happens in the spiritual path once you have a basic foundation, which is your heart opens. I can't explain why, I don't know why, but every wisdom tradition in the world says, if you do this practice, if you walk this path, your heart will soften. And it's true. And in a relationship, the way that could play out, the way that plays out beautifully is when you train yourself this may sound silly, to think of the other person as having at least equal importance to yourself in the relationship, which I know is right, sounds funny or made me laugh when I thought about it because, yeah, we're both in this, so we're both important. But I noticed how many times, especially the longer we were together, I would act like I was the only one that mattered. And that, I, especially for women that can be hard to calibrate because we think, oh, well, we should put ourselves last. I am in no way saying that. No way, no way. But it's not just me who's affected by the arguments. It's not just me who is influenced by the things that I bring into the house or the decisions that I make about how I'm going to spend my day. So that's that's what compassion is it's it's thinking of the other person as having equal importance to yourself that's what compassion is actually that's all it is i was just going to say you know something that i you know ask my husband on a regular basis a lot of the time most days is you know how can i support you even better today like how mm -hmm. can i you know yesterday morning he woke up with a sore throat and i just said how can i support you today how can i is there anything i can do 
And usually he'll just say, nothing, darling, you're, you know, just give me a smile or something like that. You know, Mm -hmm. usually he says nothing. But sometimes he's like, oh, would you mind getting me some vitamin C or something like that? Like just something really little. Mm -hmm. But also like praying for their health and their happiness. Like I do that every day. I pray for his health and his happiness because it means a lot to me and it makes a difference. And I get what you're saying. This isn't about putting everyone else first and people pleasing. That's not what we're saying here. Like women are really good at that. I don't want anyone to do that. Mm-mm. But but just, you know, put your attention on wishing them a beautiful day. You know, putting their, you know, saying that you wish for the best health and every morning when I pray, I say for I I pray for his health and his happiness and then I'm also grateful for his health and his happiness mm. in my gratitude list. And these are just little things that just make such a difference. That is, that is so lovely. That is, and I agree, they make a huge difference. They even make all the difference. And I, I want to also say that your point about this isn't about people pleasing. It's, it's like, it's so important and so true. And when you can do what you just described, I wish for your happiness and so on. To me, that's a sign that you have developed some kind of self-cherishing, some kind of self-appreciation, because otherwise it's very hard to do what you just described. It can feel begrudging or you can feel poverty-stricken about with your well wishes. So I, I've noticed, and I'm sure you have too, that often with couples that have been together a long time, they can become kind of snappish with each other. And say, you know, you might talk to your partner in ways that you wouldn't talk to anyone else even though they're the closest person to you in the whole world. I mean, we get in arguments, we say terrible things, and they can be brutal in there. And why does that happen is a question I ask myself all the time. Why does it happen that the people that we're the closest to, we may treat the worst from time to time? And the answer that I, again, learned from my Buddhist studies, actually, is that if you don't develop some self-cherishing, if you don't develop some self-love, what happens is the closer you are to someone else, the more the boundary between you and that person becomes diaphanous, starts to shimmer. And you can't always tell, where do I end and where does this person begin? And the closer you are, the less clear it is what the boundary is. And so the way you talk to yourself, which for most of us is not very nice, then becomes the way we talk to this other person as if we were talking to ourselves because the boundary is a little bit unclear. So what this points to is the necessity of working with your self-talk, not just because you deserve better than that harsh inner critic who's always telling you you did something screwy, but so that you can use that voice of kindness to others without the ability to use it toward yourself, it can leak into the way you talk to other people. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And we've often said, Nick and I, that, you know, we see people that have been married for 40, 50 years and they speak to each other so horribly. And I, and I think, and they nag and, and I just think that is exactly what we don't want. And so, yeah, you're right. This is the person that we love and that we are the closest to and that we should treat like Jesus, that we should treat like whatever you believe in, treat like unconditional love. And so that's something that, you know, I'm very intentional about as well. Like, you don't, just because they're the closest to us doesn't mean that we can speak to them like that. Yeah, they're not your whipping boy. It's, mm-hmm. I, and I know what you mean. And when I was a little kid and I would see my parents' friends, I'd be like, oh, I'm never doing that. I'm <laughs> never doing that. And that, that actually is what led to the hard questions because I, I, I did not. That's my worst nightmare. Mm-hmm. And, and if to think, well, you shouldn't talk to someone like that, as you say, is absolutely correct. But how do you prevent that? Well, it begins with the way you talk to yourself. So contemplation, kindness toward yourself, gratitude toward yourself, 
keeping an eye on that inner voice, softening toward yourself, which is what the practice of meditation is. It's not anything else. It's just simply softening toward yourself is, I think, of essential importance to avoiding that kind of naggy, bitchy way of talking to others. Although my husband is not a meditator, so it doesn't mean it's the only way. So the final piece, first the, the foundational qualities, honesty, good manners, then the open-heartedness toward this other person, which begins with open-heartedness toward yourself. And then the final piece is to look at everything that happens between you and this person, which it sounds like you guys do, which is awesome, as an opportunity not to deepen love, because love comes and goes. It's just, sorry, that's how it is. But to deepen intimacy, which has no end. When I realized that, I was like, yeah, I can't commit to love because sometimes I feel it, sometimes I don't. But intimacy, I can commit to. That has no end. There's always a way to go deeper. There's never a sense of, okay, I, you know exactly who I am and I know exactly who you are. There's nothing more to learn. There's always a way to deepen that. And when you look at the things that happen between you, again, not as ways to deepen love particularly, but as ways to know each other more intimately, that to me changed everything. That was the, that was the linchpin for me. That is what enabled me to commit to a relationship because that I can promise. I can promise to do that. I can't promise to love. Mm, Beautiful. And so for someone listening who may be going through an incredibly challenging or difficult time with their partner right now, what would you suggest be the first step besides reading your book? (laughs) You know, where would you start? Yeah. It's such a good question. And, and I, my heart goes out to anyone who is right now saying to themselves, yes, that's me. I know what that's like, and it is very painful. And the first step always is self-compassion, which doesn't mean thinking, oh, poor me, I wish, I wish things were better for me, which is fine. You can think that too. But compassion for yourself means allowing yourself to feel what you actually feel without judgment, without commentary, without manipulation. So the first step is always sitting with what you feel and allowing it to be there. That's a very actually particular skill because usually our feelings live in the body. So if you think, well, I'm feeling angry, then you locate it in your body say, uh, maybe it's in your chest or you feel it in your shoulders or you feel like your head or wherever you might feel it. And then you let your attention rest on that feeling. Not forever, because it can be, be very uncomfortable, but to acknowledge it and to say, you are welcome to this party, this unfun party. For some people, though, it does, feelings aren't noticed in the body and I say this because I'm one of these people, they're noticed in the environment. So I can tell what I feel because I feel the environment around me change. It feels heavy. It feels dark. It feels tight. It feels spacious. That happens to be where I feel it. So then I would place my attention on that. And then what is not included in feeling is thinking. The the story is thoughts. Well, I feel this way because of this, or if only I hadn't done that, or this will never work because of blah, blah. Those may be very useful thoughts, but they're not included in feeling. First is feeling. Feeling your frustration, your discomfort, your, your longing for love. Because I guarantee that what is, without knowing anybody right now, what is under that sadness or anger, frustration, disappointment is not anger, frustration, disappointment, and sorrow. What's under that is the longing for love. And that is very soft and workable and beautiful and real, and you should own that. And 
the mask that it wears is disappointment. It, for good reason. I'm not saying the disappointments or whatever are unmerited. I'm just saying that what's really happening is your longing for love is being thwarted. And you can appreciate yourself for how big your heart is. And from that foundation of acknowledging what you feel, not to change it, it must be without agenda. It must be. Then you develop a kind of softness toward yourself. You allow yourself to be who you are. And the, the key to solving difficulties in relationships and otherwise is genuineness. Mm. Being who you are. And unless you know who you are, unless you stop to give her voice, then you can't be true. You can't be authentic. And to show up with your, the truth of your feelings is the beginning of changing a difficult situation, I would say. Mm, love that. And I love that word, genuine. I feel like so many people are throwing around authentic and vulnerable, but I feel like genuine is just deep. It lands. I, I agree. It's like my ultimate sort of highest value. Mm, it's a good one. Now, let's shift gears a little. I want you to pretend that you have a magic wand and you could put one book in the school curriculum of every single high school around the world. Now, besides all of your amazing books, let's mm -hmm. pretend that they're already in the curriculum, <laughs> which they absolutely should be. What is one book that you would choose? Well, what a fascinating and amazing question. And the, the one book comes immediately to mind, and it is called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. It's an amazing book. I probably read it 20 times. And the warrior in the spiritual sense is not the one who's willing to go to war, obviously. A warrior is one who is not afraid of herself. That's the definition of warriorship. And that's the definition of how you become the person who can bring more goodness to your world and to the world, is to first not be afraid of yourself. Don't be afraid of yourself. Own yourself. And this book, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, is the handbook for dropping fear of yourself, which organically and automatically opens the door to genuineness. Mm, I love that. I'll link to that in the show notes as oh, well good. as all of your amazing books. We'll link to all of those. Thank you. Now let's talk about how your day looks. I love hearing about how people set themselves up for the day. Do you have a particular morning routine that you do? I would love if you could share with us how you prime yourself for the day. <laughs> I Yeah, I will tell you, but it's like kind of lame. I just will say that right now. I admire people that are like, I do this for 10 minutes and then I do that for an hour and then I always express gratitude and that's fantastic. And I, I, find, it, I find it challenging to do that. So nonetheless, I, I have my own little methods. So I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do before I get out of bed is I think of my teachers. I see their faces, I bring their faces to my mind, and I thank them. I have been so lucky to have been exposed to wonderful teachers. I just think of them and I, I become very emotional because I've just been very lucky. So I think of my teachers, I literally look at them in the eyes, in my mind's eye, and I feel that if I carry that appreciation for what I've been given, into my day before I even step foot out of the bed. I've already had a good day. So I come to my office, which is in the little apartment next door to our apartment, which is a great commute. It's a separate space, but it's <laughs> literally 19 steps away, I, I've counted. And I open my shrine. That's what I call it. It's called in my tradition, I open the shrine. I have little offering bowls that are just filled with basically water and light some candles. And then I sit on my couch and feel 
I don't know how else to describe it. I just feel. Sometimes I write down what I feel. Sometimes I don't, but I take stock of myself. Some days I feel good. Some days I don't feel good. Okay. And then I do my practice, my meditation practice. Most days, sometimes I don't. I, and I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. And I do my practice, which involves breath awareness meditation, but also particular liturgies meant to evoke particular forms of wisdom. And I've been taught how to do these particular practices, and they're very meaningful to me. And so I do them. Again, on good days, I don't do them every day. And then I, I try to write something. And I'm not a prolific writer. I, I'm not, I have trouble with length. I feel like, oh, I said it. it it's, I don't know what else to add. But I try to write something, you know, up to around 500 words, which for me is a very good day. And then I, I meet with my assistant at 9.45 every morning because I have an online community called the Open Heart Project which is very, very important to me, very dear to me. It's uh, 20,000 people all over the world who get meditation instruction from me. And I offer them classes and workshops and so forth. So that's, that's the lion's share of my day is serving that community. I usually poop out around noon <laughs> because I get up very early around five and I try to just give myself a break for a few hours and come back to back. That sounds much more organized than I thought it would. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you yours? for sharing. You're welcome. But can I ask you, what is yours? I, I, I'm curious. Yeah, absolutely. Mine has definitely shifted and changed and evolved over the years. But what I'm doing right now is I allow myself to wake up when my body wants to wake up. We don't have any blinds. So I just wake when I want to mm -hmm. and whenever my body is. And sometimes that's 4 a.m. and sometimes that's 6, mm -hmm. you know, it's and anywhere in between. And so I just allow my body to wake when it wants to wake. And depending if it is really early, I'll kind of sneak out and leave my husband and I will go and do a 20-minute meditation like on the couch or just somewhere by myself. And then if we kind of wake at the same time, you know, we'll have a cuddle and say good morning and we say what are we what we're grateful for together. Mm. And then we might meditate together depending on what he's got on that morning. And then I do some sort of movement. So whether that's getting out into nature and walking or going to a Pilates class or something like that. And I do a lot of other Ayurvedic practices like tongue scraping and oil pulling in between there. And I drink a massive glass of clean filtered water with some lemon juice and a pinch of salt in it. Mm. And then, you know, shower and get ready for my day. But, you know, it's not, it's not a strict must do this, then this. It's, it depends on really what time I wake up, really. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, and for me, connecting with my husband is very important. So if I get up earlier and then I go outside to meditate, he'll kind of call me back in when he's awake. Mm -hmm. I'll hear him call out to me and then I go back and jump back into bed and Aww. we'll have a cuddle and, you know, have that time together. Because I find when we've taken that time together to just you know, have a cuddle and have a little chat, and sometimes it's five minutes and sometimes it's longer, our day flows so much more smoothly and effortlessly because we've taken that time to just connect with each other and honor each other and just check in with each other. And it really sets the tone for the day. It's something that we just, we love doing at this time in our life. That is so nice. I, I, and I, I love that. And I got to say, I like, I roll out and I leave. It, it's <laughs> what you're describing sounds so good, but I feel like I have this like, I don't know, I'm carrying this like little egg of creativity when I wake up in the morning. And if I stop anywhere, you know, I could drop it. And so I, I just try to go, I try to go right to work, but 
That sounds beautiful. And, and you sound like you are in a wonderful relationship and you are a wonderful partner. And it's lovely to hear about your relationship. Yeah. And it's, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. And sure. it's something that we're both incredibly conscious of working on. And I always say to my tribe, you know, the grass is greener where you water it. And if you want a relationship to flourish, you've got to put love and attention and energy and time into it. And that's something that we are very intentional about. It's just making sure we're constantly investing time and love and energy together and and really allowing our relationship to flourish. But yeah, we've been through so much and we have had times of challenge and struggle, but it's you know, that's where the growth happens as well. And it's it's been beautiful to kind of watch the evolution of our marriage over the past, you know, six years. It's so great. It's so wonderful. And and ditto over the past 20 years. It it just keeps getting deeper and weirder and and <laughs> more interesting and mysterious. And and at this point, you know, I love him. I I, I really do. And I know he loves me too. But that's on one level. On another level, I don't know what to call how I feel about him. It, it's so beyond anything that I ever thought love was. It, I don't ha- even have words for it. And I also find that, and I'm sure you find this too and will continue as your relationship progresses, that rather than loving each other or in addition to loving each other as the foundation of the relationship, I feel like the relationship loves us. It's like we draw love from the relationship. It creates a kind of container of love that when one or both of us are kind of tired from loving or don't have anything to give, it bolsters us. It is. It creates a kind of buoyancy just by its longevity that I was quite interested to find. I didn't expect that. Yeah. And I talk about this in my book, Open Wide. One of the biggest things that has really helped us in our relationship is what I call CCC, crystal clear communication. And this has been one of the biggest things in our relationship that has allowed us to continue to grow and evolve. And there's only ever a breakdown in our relationship when one of us hasn't practiced that. You know, or we thought that the other person could read our mind or, you know, why couldn't you just read my mind that I wanted you to do that? You know, so this is, it's so important. That communication is so important. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. And it begins with knowing the truth yourself. And then communication is is more possible. So introspection and time with yourself and prioritizing yourself, those things are remain important throughout, I would say. Absolutely. Now I've got three little rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I am. What is one thing that we can do today for our health? Get a little more sleep. Awesome. I agree. What is one thing that we can do for more wealth? So more abundance in all areas of our life. Appreciate what you have right now. Yeah, beautiful. And what is one thing we can do for more love in our life? Appreciate your own longing for love. Mm, Beautiful. And is there anything else that you want to share? Is there anything that I didn't ask you about? Any last parting words of wisdom? Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. I want to say that first. And you've asked fantastic questions and it's, it's been a delight. What I want to say is everyone, especially you and you and you and you, is deserving of absolute unconditional love. And there is no question, and to me, no confusion on that score. Mm, I absolutely agree. So true. This has been so beautiful, and I could chat for hours. I want I want you to come over for a cup of I'm tea ready. and we <laughs> and just have deep conversations like this. This has been so beautiful. 
And I'm a massive believer in service. And I want to know how can we serve you today? What can I and the listeners do to serve you? That is so, what a lovely question. What would serve me would be for you to be kind to yourself, to soften toward yourself, to allow yourself to be exactly as you are right now, no change required. Nothing would serve me more than that. Mm, Beautiful, so beautiful. I'm gonna definitely do that today. Thank you for the reminder. Good. Susan, this has been so beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the incredible work that you do in the world. It's so important. It's so powerful. I am incredibly grateful for your work. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. You are welcome. And ditto, you shine a very bright light, Melissa. Thank you for that. Wow, guys. Wasn't that amazing. I truly believe that everyone needs to know these four noble truths about relationships and make sure you do grab her book because it is life-changing. And I got so much out of today's episode, so many great reminders because I know for me, when I got married in 2014, I didn't just say I do. I said, I commit to doing whatever it takes to make this relationship thrive. And that means always doing the work on myself, always continuously showing up as the best version of myself, working on myself, and then working on our relationship as well. So if you got a lot out of today's episode, please subscribe and leave me a five-star review in iTunes or on your podcast app, because that means that we can inspire and educate even more people together. And it also means that you could be the review of the week for next week. And don't forget to come and follow me on Instagram at Melissa Ambrosini and tell me your top key takeaways from this episode. I absolutely love reading what you guys got out of these episodes. So please share them with me. And for everything that Susan and I mentioned in today's episode, you can check out in the show notes. And that is over at melissaambrosini.com forward slash 219. And you can also listen to all my other episodes there too. And before I go, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being here, for wanting to be the best, the healthiest, and the happiest version of yourself, and for showing up today for you. You rock. Now, if there is someone in your life that you can think of that would really benefit from this episode, please be an angel and share it with them right now. If you have a partner, please share this episode with them. You can take a screenshot of it. You can share it on your social media. You can email it to them. You can text it to them. Just do whatever you've got to do to get this important information in their ears. Because if we all just took more responsibility within our own relationships, that is going to ripple out to everyone that we come into contact with. So please do the work on yourself, do the work on your relationship because it really makes a huge impact in the world. And until next time, my darling, don't forget that love is sexy, healthy is liberating, and wealthy isn't a dirty word.